Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Nat Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Gijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Mutulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens! Coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. Black community is plagued by many deficits, economic, civic, political, educational, and we have long known that too many black churches in our community have disengaged from its historical role in addressing the issues that ravish our people at our common ground. We explore the notion that the black church is on fire, and it has been invaded by a new theology of prosperity that has created a distance and barriers to the traditional roles that it has played in the political, civic, and social development in our community and in our struggle toward justice and freedom. This is our common ground. Our guest tonight, Dr. Matthew Johnson. He is the author of The Tragic Vision of African American Religion and many more that inform us of the nature of our institutional and spiritual resources that have historically come from the black church. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Black Church on Fire, the black church and the prosperity gospel movement with Dr. Matthew Johnson. Thank you for being with us. We, we have a lot of spirit in our churches. I'm not just sure whose spirit it is. And, and maybe that's why thinking is so low in our church. You see, I think the black church is very good at producing people who can proclaim who can preach, who can really entertain. And we have done that well 
In fact, we have, I think it would be fair to say, we have produced the greatest preachers in the world. That is, we have produced people who can really say the word, their word. But what we have not done is we have not really helped our people to know what the gospel is, to think on it, to reflect on it, and to be able to understand what challenges this gospel places before us in the world in which we live. To try and distort Jesus to try and justify your new jet plane or your new Rolls Royce is to me an abomination. Joining L. Sharpton in condemning the gospel of prosperity is religious author Jim Wallace. The prosperity gospel is a biblical heresy. It reverses the biblical view and priorities. The pastor of Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church, Reverend Raphael Warnock, agrees. The gospel of the bling bling in which the preachers and the rappers are saying virtually the same thing. Get rich or die trying. Reverend Wardock says prosperity preaching is dangerously out of line with the teachings of Jesus Christ. When preachers fail to speak to that larger social reality, not only are they being irresponsible, in a real sense we become bedfellows uh, with the powers and the principalities that oppress the poor. But followers of Creflo Dollar we spoke to say once they embraced his teachings, they experienced God's prosperity. We had a house built. Uh, we were a couple that wanted to have the American dream. So when the pastor started teaching about business and that God, God wants you prosperous and how to get wealth God's way, we were just we were blown away. We were thinking like, wow, so... God wants us to be rich and have all these, you know, nice cars and a big house and vacation homes. I mean, both of us came from a background where uh, his family struggled, my family struggled, so we didn't have, uh, we weren't used to having nice things. So to see people say that God blessed them with these things if they would seek him first, it, it blew us away. I mean, we already wanted to, we still had this void and we felt that we were just, we felt such a disconnect from Jesus the more and more that we pursued all of these things. And till one day, I think God just smacked both of us. And, and it was then, it was a, a certain day, we had been on the phone arguing for hours. And at that moment, both of us said to ourselves, we are not in God's will. We're just going to forget all of this stuff about prosperity and trying to find wealth and possessions. And we're just going to get back to seeking God and, and find out what God really wants from us. The, the phrase comes to mind, you know, I'm blessed and highly favored. When we used to speak to each other and say, how you doing? Now people announce the fact that they're blessed and highly favored by God. Uh, at one level, it looks like a statement of faith. At another level... It has an element of religious pathology to it. In, in that, um, it singles people out to think that they are in some sense, it has, I think, the psychological resonance of saying that I'm better, I'm different, I'm other uh, than you are. And I think that has a strange appeal in the black community where 
we are constantly being told that we are less than and that we do not measure up. Um, the cultural categories that define black being, the cultural taxonomies that defines us as evil, bad, negative, criminal, uh, uh, not intellectually uh, up, up to par, and so forth. So that this has a, the, the tenets of the prosperity gospel has another level of psychological appeal in the black community that makes it extremely attractive. And consequently, it has a certain kind of staying power. The problem is, is that it is very unhealthy. It encourages a certain kind of divisiveness in the community so that those of us who define ourselves as Christian in this narrower sense see ourselves as somehow insulated from the other dynamics that are impacting the larger black community. In other words, that's happening to you because your faith isn't right. It's happening to you because you're not faithful in terms of your religious observance or it's happening to you because you don't believe the right things, which then suggests that all you have to do is believe the right things, uh, go to the right church, listen to the right bishop, and suddenly your life will fall in order. And Pray till they tear your kingdom down. Our Common Ground, and I'm Janice Graham. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we welcome you and thank you for joining us here at Speaking Truth to Power. Our topic tonight is Black Church on Fire, the Black Church and the Prosperity Gospel Movement. Our guest is Dr. Matthew V. Johnson, Sr. He joins us here in this discussion to talk about the decline of black church engagement in the matters of black community, socioeconomic, cultural, and governmental affairs. And we've talked a lot about this at Our Common Ground. Uh, Dr. Johnson, Reverend Dr. Johnson, and I have to check with him about what the protocol is on those titles, is a graduate of Morehouse College, and he earned his master's and Ph.D. degrees in Philosophical Theology from the University of Chicago. He has done postgraduate studies in psychoanalysis and is currently a member in training at the Institute of Contemporary Psychotherapy and Psychoanalysis. He has been in the ministry for 30 years. He's a pastor of the Church of the Good Shepherd Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, and he served as the National Executive Director of Every Church of Peace, Peace Church. Dr. Johnson lives, writes, teaches, and practices ministry in the greater Atlanta area, and we are so pleased to have him join with us this evening to talk about the Black Church on Fire. Reverend Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for joining us, and you are on Our Common Ground. Good evening. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, 
I, I, I'm just very excited to have someone who seems to uh, have explored in a very detailed and in-depth way the the question of not only what is happening in the place and position that the black church uh, is in our community, but to also talk about this transformation that seems to be uh, invading uh, the black church. But first, let's talk about you. You are the author of The Tragic Vision of African American Religion, and you also are the author of a wonderful novel called uh, entitled The Cicada's Song, and we're going to talk about that book. But first, I, I want to ask you, I know that you grew up in um in the in the south. What what brought you to your ministry? And how have you framed that out of the context of your own per, your personal history? Actually, I uh, I want first I want to make sure that you can hear me well. Am I coming through? Yes, okay? you're fine. Okay. Uh, uh first of all, I want to up something. I did uh, grow up in the South partially, but uh, initially I grew up in New Jersey till about 12 or 13. And then I uh, moved to the South and uh, lived with my grandparents on the family farm down there uh, in rural Virginia in a place called uh, Lawrenceville, Virginia, Brunswick County. And so my experience actually... Uh, uh, growing up spans both the north and the south, and I got a good look at and a, a sense of, uh, of both. Um, I was raised in a in a in a family where uh, most of the most, if not all, of the women uh, were churchgoers, and the men not as often, but they did affirm uh, the importance of us going, even if they did not attend. So I was always familiar with the church, um, uh, but my call to my ministry came in my adolescence, my mid to late adolescence. At least that's when I recognized it or accepted it as such. And uh, it was it was uh, a traditional call. I felt summoned by God to preach the gospel and to feed a sheep. Um, so after a certain amount of very committed devotional time. Uh, sharing this information with one of my uncles in the extended family. Uh, he went, actually, to the minister, Reverend Abraham Walton, of, uh, of Poplar Mount Baptist Church in Brunswick County, and uh, uh, they, they settled on the fact that I had a call. So it was uh, it was interesting. I got the call, but it was a... Wait a minute. A, a they had room. a conference to, to figure out whether it was genuine or not? Well, kind of. you got to understand... That's how it works. They had a, a conference to, uh, um, I guess, to, to determine whether or not uh, the church was going to proceed with it. I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that they ever doubted that it was genuine. In fact, my, my uncle is the one who encouraged me to uh, come forward. I, I did not intend to actually at that time anyway, but it was he who encouraged me, uh, an uncle in my extended family. But yes, they had those conferences. But this is not; those conferences are not unrelated to what we're talking about uh, tonight. 
because there is a sense in which we still need some of that in the church, in that Mm -hmm. those conferences provided uh, a certain amount of accountability uh, to the community uh, for your call. Because after they had the conference about whether or not I would proceed, I had to go before the church body and preach what was called then a trial sermon. And if your sense of the gospel was not as as they felt it should have been, uh, you were not afforded a license. In other words, we didn't have uh, preachers just handing out licenses to other preachers with no accountability to the community. It was a process that ultimately resulted in communal sanction or uh, a community sanction in a positive or negative way. Not everybody who claimed to be called got a license, at least back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Where, whereas now, I'm not sure who is conferring on some of these people who claim to be preachers. Now we just hand out licenses like we're, uh, uh, I don't know, I mean, handing out receipts at the store. Just mm-hmm. any and everybody can claim claim this. A claim is the easiest thing to make. But within the church, there used to be some sense of accountability to the community so that your claims was tested against a sense of authenticity that we that we believed was entrusted to the community by the activity of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's old church. Mm-hmm. But, this, but this new church, there seems to be uh, no kind of accountability whatsoever. It's, it's sort of like whosoever will let them come. And so mm-hmm. somebody has to take the responsibility, uh, and ultimately it must be the community, uh, the, the Christian church itself. And uh, in the black community, it was pretty much those two were synonymous in a sense at a certain point, must take responsibility for holding people accountable who make those claims. Mm-hmm. As my mother was um, always said, uh, and often, some some are called and some just come. <laughs> yeah. My mother my mother used to say some are called, some were sent, and some just went. <laughs> <laughs> so when you entered Morehouse College, you had essentially decided made your uh career decision. One of the things that I'm very interested in in your background is how you connected the notion of being a spiritual leader with psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Talk a little about that, would you please? Yeah. Um, I became very interested in psychoanalysis uh, as an undergrad at Morehouse College. Um, I pursued my interest in it um, throughout my graduate career at the University of Chicago, although I did not focus primarily on psychology and religion but rather uh, philosophy and religion. However, my concern with the problem of suffering, which classically is called the problem of evil, my concern with the problem of suffering caused me to look for methods that helped me to get at, explicate, um, uh, analyze, examine, people's suffering in ways that help to illuminate the path to healing them so that it wasn't just enough to understand 
the nature of a human being, but to understand the nature of a human being uh, from a perspective that then helped to illuminate the path toward healing that person. And I found in psychoanalysis and the various theoretical uh, schools that have emerged from the discipline a very helpful approach to understanding the dynamics of human experience um, that helped me to think through not only what is wrong, but perhaps ways of helping people find their way out of it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's why I chose. I chose because it was a good instrument, both of analysis and of facilitation of the healing process. Well, one of the things that I find fascinating uh, in your book, uh, the tragic vision of African American religions, is that religion is that you have so successfully and so dynamically connected black people's need and reliance upon the church and the gospel uh, and connected it to, all the way back, to the transatlantic holocaust. Let's talk about that for a moment. I have this theory, and I'm going to test it with you, that as a people, we suffer, we do suffer from a collective depression which somehow sits in our DNA, no matter what path we have taken, what opportunities we have had, we all tap into it. So the church becomes such a core and central way of us soothing the pain of our very history. Am I on to something here? Fundamentally, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly and without remain, and that's what my book is geared at explicating. And it, as far back as my dissertation in 91, I had basically analyzed those dynamics. The interesting thing was I was told by black theologians at the time, wonderful work, Matthew, but nobody's interested in talking to you about that. And uh, they didn't think it should be published because it did not rely exclusively on black sources. Otherwise, my work would have been published close to two decades ago. And what? In other words, they told me they told me it wasn't black enough. Uh huh. What? What? (laughs) Um. Is it because of the 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 basic theory that um, and and you talk a lot in this book. You look a lot at this whole notion of healing, suffering healing and repair and uh, the church's role in that process. Well, and here, go ahead. But, no, go ahead. I, I want to finish, finish your question. I'm sure wondering, I... I'm wondering if that is somehow a benchmark measurement of how successful uh, the black church has been, say, from, from the 1980s up until this time because it seems that the symptoms of our suffering, the symptoms of our grief uh, have, 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 have just doubled as a, 
opposed to being a hopeful and a faithful people in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, and especially right after the Civil War doing what I call neo-slavery. That's a lot. Let me see where I can begin. First of all, a number of things. One, that there is a collective wound that we share uh, as a race of people. Um, uh, Of course, I wrote a whole book on it, so there's no way that I could talk about it all uh, on one broadcast. So I'm going to give it give a kind of short theoretical shorthand um, in very basic terms. The collective wound is the result of the trauma of being snatched out of the matrix of relations that made life meaningful and then uh, not being integrated into the world that you were thrown into. Consequently, black people as a group never really landed in America. We're still out to sea. We're still on the water. We're still in the Middle Passage in an existential sense. So that there is a loss, a very profound loss of the fundaments of what we call a kind of, of existential rootedness. The fundaments that make us in some meaningful sense at home in our world are absent. Uh, we can't quite call America our own because we're reminded every day that we don't, we don't quite qualify uh, for full participation and or an equitable participation that somehow our citizenship is always second hand and when we do experience some sense of being americans it is something grandfathered in and uh uh, uh something granted to us uh, at the at the uh behest of white folk so even when we do experience ourselves as a part it's sort of uh, it, it's sort of where it, it is extended to us by the grace of our, our, our host population. And so we never quite can embrace America as our own. Even those uh, African Americans who try to do that, they come off inauthentic and false. And we all know that we're not comfortable waving flags on the 4th of July. We're still, we still don't quite embrace, and, and I don't think we ever should, because there's something to be said for the marginalized position of people that give them the prophetic posture. But there is a very deep degree in which we have not been integrated into this new place. Um, white, whites of various histories have had their stories articulated and then integrated into the larger American meta-narrative. But the African American is still a problem. We still have Du Bois's Negro problem. So we're still at issue. And if you're at issue, you're not integrated into the, the, the larger system existentially. Consequently, because we lost so much and because our experiences are characterized by loss and loss that's unrequited, uh, our religion developed in the context of trauma and loss. And so it developed and emerged as an adaptation to those ongoing circumstances and those Realities are reflected in the mood structure of our faith and of traditional African-American spirituality. And that mood structure was both a reflection of and an antidote for the poisonous reality we were living in. 
So it's kind of sorrowful, it is moody, but it is rich, powerful, and full with the affirmation of life that surges through it in spite of and at the same time as we express our pain, which allowed us to do two things. It allowed us to embrace the reality without falsifying it and yet affirm our humanity and the presence of God in the face of it. However terrible the truth was, it was not terrible enough to destroy the fabric of our humanity or our faith. Okay, and then it also preserved the integrity of our pain. Okay, so all of this was a part of the mood structure of African-American religions, what I call the tragic vision of African-American religion. Now, around the 80s, there was a a systemic or systematic effort to undermine, it started a little before then, undermine the spiritual fabric of the African-American community because it was an independent source of otherness, it was culturally generative, and it was by its very presence an indictment of the superficial, amoral, if not morally bankrupt, spirituality of white America. So they undermined it. And black people began to embrace a very narrow fundamentalism that was a part of the conservative surge. Now, along with this fundamentalism became the devaluation of our experientially oriented faith. So then the byword became word-centered. Word-centered is not innocent in the black community. Word-centered became a euphemism for uh, experience being decentered. By word-centered, that means that the experience that made up the, the stock and the staple of black spirituality had to become decentered. Don't focus on your experiences, focus on the word. Well, the word was part and parcel of our experience. The word shaped our experience. It had permeated our experience. It became the living breath of our experience. But now we had to sound, talk, and act like white fundamentalists in order to have theological credibility among our own people. That's when our tradition began to disintegrate. Now, the prosperity movement is part of an offshoot of that kind of fundamentalism that emerged in the 80s, and much of it is learned at the feet of white folk who have histories baptized in the oppression and the alienation and the disenfranchisement of black people. And many of these black preachers have gone to white folk to learn how to come back to the black community and exploit black people because regardless of whether or not we want to accept it, In many cases, white people understand some of us better than we understand ourselves. They know that some of us are weak, needy, and vulnerable, and there are ways of exploiting that. For instance, there are ways of exploiting the need for black people to feel secure about their religious expression by having it validated by white America. So if you get a preacher who no longer sounds like a black preacher, and we had perhaps, I think Dr. Cohn was right, one of the best, if not the best and most productive preaching traditions in the world, they undermined that we wanted to start sounding like white preachers because because it sounded white, it sounded smart. And because it was smart, we were learning something. We weren't learning nothing from the other preachers with all that hoop and hollering, but we got somebody who's teaching us. Well, teaching us always happened to sound suspiciously like white southerners uh, preaching. 
and it had nothing to do with the content, nothing to do with the relevance, nothing to do with the substance of what they were saying. That is what created this atmosphere of vulnerability into which the prosperity movement rushed in and has now inherited that whole method of responding to certain kinds of needs in the black community, I shouldn't say need, neediness, certain kinds of psychological and spiritual vulnerabilities, and so forth, and these people have found a way to exploit it, and they're making millions off of it. Now, that is so a thumbnail. So I had thumbnail. it tagged pretty good. In the, it, it's, yes. This started in 19, in around the 1980s. Right. You did. At the same time, you saw these uh, organizations like uh, Campus Crusade for Christ and Navigators and all these fundamentalist-based and backed organizations moving in on the black college campuses across the country and across the uh, southeastern region. And um, the rise of, of individuals like E.V. Hill and others on white, uh, cons- mainly theologically conservative broadcasts and so forth, and got us used to seeing black people uh, in these conservative environments, and we began to trust them more than we should uh, for the 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 religious and spiritual directions we began to take in our churches. Now, so, yeah, it all started in the 80s. Was there something else that was going on that undergird uh, uh, this change? Um, one of the things that comes to mind is the whole integration of our society, the move, especially in the South, away from Jim Crow limitations um, and, partic- and and the other is participation in the political process. We saw the election of more black officials. Uh, we saw in local com- local government more participate uh, more people taking on leadership roles in local government. It, it, was that any way part uh, of the impact of this? Turning the corner for the black church. I, I don't. I don't think so. I think the 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 this. I don't. I don't know if I want to call it turning a corner. That kind of gives it more of a positive spin than I, <laughs> I would want to see it have. But but no, I think it was it was less of that um, and 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 less integration. I think it was a little a little more subtle and a little more sinister at the same time. As when Reagan came to uh, power. There was this identification of conservative ideology with patriotic American affirmation. There was this this very carefully wedded um, ideology that brought together um, pro-American sentiments um, and conservative political philosophy. Behind this, the, the upthrust of a conservative political philosophy was conservative uh, right-wing religion um, that attempted to restore uh, what they felt was a kind of lost dignity to white America. Now, this lost dignity kind of is identified, uh, unfortunately, it, it is white supremacy that white people, unfortunately, 
uh, identify the dignity of whiteness with white supremacy. In other words, not to affirm the superiority of whiteness is to devalue and to degrade whiteness. They have wedded those two things so that whiteness is not at what whiteness should be and is supposed to be and white people need it to be unless it's superior. Now, at the same time that they wedded those two things and they wedded the religion to it, there's new emphasis on purity, which always walks hand in hand with racism. Whiteness, purity, and the Christian faith is a vehicle by which that sense of purity is brought uh, and sustained. So that America, the sense of purity, and Christianity uh, were brought together, okay, which left anybody who didn't buy into that new ideological hegemony uh, left them marginalized, left them looking for a definition. They weren't authentically American, they weren't authentically Christian, and they, they, they weren't authentically white, um, which is always implicit in, in the way America is used among these that, that particular vintage of patriot. So with, with that in the air, there was a, a sort of... Um, expansion or grandiosity associated with that whole sort of right-wing vision of what it means to be a Christian and American. And I think black people did not want to be left out of the equation. I think we bought into it. I think we bought into it particularly or mainly through religion as we didn't buy into it in other areas. It was able to be smuggled in to the church because it was hidden in the Trojan horse of Jesus talk and Christianity talk. So where they couldn't fool us politically and they, they couldn't fool us uh, in terms of social and economic practices because we're still catching hell, where they could fool us is to the Trojan horse of Christianity because that gift of grace always facilitated a certain relaxation of our defenses. Well, Reverend Johnson, what did this Trojan horse look like? Um, how did a it de-emphasis, I can answer that uh, uh, mm-hmm. real quickly, a de-emphasis of social concerns, a de-emphasis of communal concerns, a de-emphasis of focus on the poor, and, a, and an emphasis on single-issue moral causes like abortion anti-stem cell research, anti-gay theology and ideology, and that series of issues. So they, tr- they recaptured the moral high ground, where once suddenly, theologically, the moral high ground was a sense of equality, uh, injustice for all, uh, all people are created equal, uh, we must lift up the lower portions of American society, a war on poverty. Where that was once the moral high road, it became decentered as the conservative right reclaimed that ground. And in order to claim it, they needed issues, and the issues became abortion, stem cell research, uh, America's moral purity, and a lot. And, oh, and the family became key. Okay, so they replaced. All of those other issues with these issues. And that suddenly became the criteria for what was Christian. All right? And so then black people began to begin to heed 
the siren call of these right-wing ideologues hidden in the Trojan horse of Christian rhetoric. And when they started that, we opened ourselves up to what eventually became the prosperity movement. Did this happen? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, and on one hand, uh, it, it changed the fabric of what our churches were were engaged in. But did it happen quickly, or did it happen over time? It um, happened relatively quickly. Did it happen quickly. because some black face happened to be invited to the 700 Club? What? I mean, how did this happen? And, and that, what are we talking about when we say the the the, the black church? What okay, church those are complicated are questions. About? If uh, I, they're kind of nuanced, so if you ask me too many of them, I'm not going to be able to answer I'm them. I'm sorry. As, 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 a, as, a, as well as I'd like to. I mean, um, I've been been talking about the black church on fire. I've been on fire about this topic for almost twenty years since I well, you're started broadcasting. Um. But you're asking me now, how did this happen? Did it happen over time? Yes, it did happen over time, but it happened relatively quickly, and it happened in a variety of ways. One of the ways it happened was, for instance, by getting key black figures or black faces and then validating them. Uh-huh. And, that was uh, the validation process in the same way that we had the validation process in politics. Yes, unfortunately, it, 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 but it's deeper than that. It was psychologically validating for a lot of, of, of black people. And, you know, and, and Christianity and, and religion often attracts uh, people at their weakest or it speaks to them at their weakest and people are most vulnerable. And so, unfortunately, we are still... Um, bewitched and uh, deluded by black faces. We think that if we have black faces on police forces, they're somehow uh, automatically less racist. If we have black judges, they're automatically more just and sensitive. None of that is true. Actually, that's the same kind of vulnerability, and it's making us vulnerable, again, to people who sell out. So having a black preacher preaching white theology don't make it no better. Give it to a Creflo Dollar, T.D. Jakes, uh, or whoever you want to give it to, doesn't make it black because there's a black face doing it. It's still just as white as it was before they opened their mouth. And see, so, but that method uh, was used effectively. And they knew it would be used effectively. This is the old British indirect rule where you find a black face. They've been doing this since the 19th century, 19th century colonialism. Okay, it's not working anymore, early 20th century, it's not working anymore that we have white rulers in black lands, so we'll find us some black rulers in black lands to appease the natives so that we can go on exploiting uh, their natural resources and raping their land and stealing their farms and having them do our, our, our hard work uh, as cheap labor. We'll just have a black person tell them. They're not going to listen to us, so let one of their own tell them. And you can always find one of your own to sell out. Mm-hmm. You know, Frank uh, Schaefer, who is the author of Crazy for God, has been on this program a number of times, and we've talked about uh, the uh, right-wing fundamentalists. And if you, you're not familiar with him, his father was actually the father 
of evangelical fundamental religion uh, across the globe. Um, and and he talks about the danger and the craziness of all of it and how it is rooted in oppression and the system in which it was built uh, to build armies of fundamentalists, evangelical fun- fundamentalists, to change the fabric of the political and cultural fabric of this country. Yes, and uh, because, yes, for a number of reasons. Let me go back to one other thing as in, in related to, the, to this issue. We're talking about how it happened in the black church. How it really happened, and another, another dimension was, when we stopped singing and, and our songs and using our own language and methods, when we stopped preaching like black preachers preach, singing like black people sing, and, 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 and singing what we sung, that's when it started, when we exchanged um, our liturgy for what we thought was an upgrade. Now I'm going to say something that's going to be controversial. It also had a root in the church changing, because in the 1970s and in the 80s, it suddenly became vogue to talk about two things. And I'm doing shorthand here. One of the things was that the black church is the route to power in the black community, because the black church is the center of the community. So this romanticization of the black church attracted the attention of all the narcissists and exhibitionists in the community and those who were politically ambitious. Also, we started talking about the black church as the place where so many famous singers got their start. Once again, the black church was inundated by people who were looking for a stage. Every would-be composer and musician that wanted to find their way into pop culture and and to find their way into a professional singing career started looking at the church as the platform, uh, the launching pad for musical careers. In the in the back of all of that was the need to have a serious musical career is you, is crossing over, gaining the attention of producers and distributors. So as we begin to raid and to strip mine the black tradition, we also begin to import a lot of white forms that musicians and others thought sold well. Mm-hmm. And this, and then, and it was part of a Pentecostalization of the black church, and that Pentecostalization was already septic with white influences from the assemblies of God and other denominations, and this this inundation of toxic silt from the flood of popular religion media oriented religion covered the black church and we're still trying to clean out the muck the ideological and theological muck so all this happened around the same time so then you get a sea change in how we do church how we respond so that even black people in pews no longer were were familiar with the songs that they sung somebody had to put them up on a screen, or you had to sit there and be entertained as the choir uh, entertained and performed for the congregation. 
so that it was no longer mutual exchange and interchange between worship leader, preacher, and congregation. Suddenly, we were at performances. So clapping became in vogue instead of ordinary call and response. And suddenly shouting became just making noise in church and not responding to the evolution of the spirit during an ordered liturgy. All of that changed. Mm -hmm. And you know what comes to mind um, is that somewhere as we began to celebrate in the black community our first, the first one appointed to this and the state this and the state commission and the local uh, commission, uh, by people, white people, who thought that they would pluck out leader, leaders and, and, and anoint leaders, political leaders in our community. This, at the same time, we were seeing the uh, evolution of Jesse Jackson as a presidential candidate, and he was working his political campaign through the black church, and white folks were discovering the power of the black church in terms of numbers in the electorate. And then there was something else going on at the White House, and that was that Bush one was beginning to have all of these dinners and conferences and inviting black pastors to the White House. And we were all, you all know you're sitting out there, you know we were all very impressed by all of this. We were very impressed by uh, being able to say that rather than having uh, um, uh, uh, money to run the church, we had a budget. <laughs> and we had pastors who were looking for uh, the same kind of, Commemora uh, commensuration that people were getting in the private sector in jobs. And that was part of the, Reverend Johnson, would you agree that that was part of the corrosion? No, I don't, I don't think so at all. As a matter of fact, the, it, if you look at scales, they were shifting. Um, when we talk about the private sector, I don't think that's appropriate because we need to talk about the middle class. What did the middle class mean in terms of the black community as it evolved? The middle class were your pastors, your preachers, and your teachers, and people who worked in the public sector, because the private sector wasn't employing us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Consequently, the church uh, began to, um, as people began to evolve and get jobs in the private sectors, they often secularized their churches. This was not the pastor's doing. This was the people's doing. Yes. And they have to take a little response. If you look at how we get pastors now, they want us to fill out applications like we're looking for a janitorial position, not a position as a pastor. And mm -hmm. then they want the same material given in your resume. It's really, it's really kind of degrading to ask a head of a nonprofit organization to fill out an application like the kind that they're asking for people who are applying to churches. And that's not the pastor's doing. That's the doing of, of, of very uh, uh, unfortunately uh, misled uh, congregants who, having been exposed to the white world, suddenly think that their methods lead magically when employed in the black environment to success. They don't even lead to success in their own environment. Um, 
And so they began to look 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 at the church in a variety a variety of ways, not just the pastors. Now, in terms of pastoral compensation, part of the anxiety was that the churches, how by making demands in terms of education and so forth that they wanted pastors to have training and experience, actually weren't keeping up with what the private sector was offering. Mm-hmm. And many of these pastors, some of these lesser lights who have carried the influence of the prosperity ministry into these churches are some ordinary pastors who who were tired of having to fight for what they would do. So some of this responsibility is on the churches because they didn't want to pay their pastors properly. As far as black pastors becoming rich and so forth off the churches, much of that is a myth. We look at those that actually become rich, and we don't look at those who give their life's blood and retire without the decency or the dignity of a retirement. So they I can't retire. That point. Yes. Okay. So consequently, this that prosperity thing became attractive to some pastors who were fighting for their for just their existential and financial and professional dignity. Listen, if you have a judge in a democracy, he can't be the lowest guy on, on a totem pole in terms of pay. Why? Because you don't want a judge in a financial position where he is vulnerable. The same thing with a pastor in the black community. That is your judge. You don't want the leader of your community easily corrupted and financially vulnerable because Historic wisdom says that if your leadership is financially vulnerable, they're easily corrupted and influenced by powers that are not in your interest. So it's really complicated. It's not a very, the black community has some very deeply ingrained problems that need to be hashed out, but we're not able to put all of this on, um, on just these preachers. Even if you look at, uh, well, Creflo Dollar, he's in the news. We'll pick out Creflo. I don't want to pick on him. But even if you I look do. at Creflo, okay, well, we'll pick on him then. It, it, let's, 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 let's look at Creflo. Let's, let's, talk, let's talk about Creflo. I've got to take a break, and I do have a clip about Creflo. So let's put a pin there, and when we come back from break, we'll talk about specifically about Creflo Dollar. The other thing, Reverend Johnson, that I want to talk about is how we have acquiesced to some of some non-traditional denominations that people label as black churches, but in fact they are not traditionally oh, wow. black yeah. churches. I want to talk about that. You're listening to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, We'll talk more with our guest tonight, Reverend Dr. Matthew Johnson. Thank you for being with us. This is Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. The Black Church on Fire, the Black Church and the Gospel of Prosperity. Enter the lion's den. Enter the lion's den with LDX and Information Man. 
Swagger Talk Radio at TruthWorks Network. TruthWorks Network. Royal Lion Mob, into the lion. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals. The United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. See, I can't take no credit for what you see. This is God who had the plan for my life. The life of a millionaire pastor. You've got to humble yourself for God's plan in order for him to prosper your life. It is the basis of Reverend Creplo Dollar's $80 million a year ministry. One that sells books, DVDs, and CDs by the millions. All the while teaching the gospel of prosperity. I define prosperity as every arena of life. Prospering in your spirit, prospering in your soul, prospering in your physical body. That's healthy. Prospering in your relationships, prospering on your job, and prospering in your finances. As Christians, the way you... Reverend Dollar says he learned prosperity gospel from his mentors, Kenneth Copeland and Oral Roberts. <laughs> Hallelujah, glory to God. I'm trying to get myself together here because God's been good to me, you understand? Good enough that he owns a Metro Atlanta mansion so popular that pictures of it are passed around on the Internet. If you want to buy it, let me know. <laughs> How much is it? <laughs> well, I think it's listed. I got it listed for $3 million. Tesla Dollar also owns several expensive cars, including a Rolls Royce. It was a gift that my local church gave to me. You don't turn down a gift that somebody gives you. This Learjet is something else the church gave to Creflo Dollar Ministries. We were the first members of the media allowed on board for one of the Reverend's weekly trips to New York City. In which way is this jet important for your ministry? Well, in order for me to do what I've been called to do, the airlines, they don't fly my schedule.
You're listening to Our Common Ground at Blog Talk Radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Join our community at Facebook. Support us by blogging and leaving us comments so that we can continue the work transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. But he can't be buried. They said he's dead, but he can't be buried. Come on, come on, come on, come on. This can't be real. And thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Tonight we're talking about the Black Church on Fire, and our guest is Dr. Matthew Johnson. Dr. Johnson, once again, thank you so very much for for joining us. Before we went to break, we were going to talk about Reverend Creflo Dollar as part of the iconic landscape of understanding what this prosperity gospel movement and in its invasion into the black church means. Tell us about what it is. Well, I'm glad you characterized it as an invasion because that's what it is. Um, In the clip uh, that was playing during the break, um, you identified uh, the sources of Creflo Dollar's theology and method, Kenneth Copeland and Oral Roberts. And you identified the spirituality and the theology that has always sought to control, to harness, and to expropriate black religion. It, it's sort of like um, the the mafia didn't want to let blacks in Harlem control the numbers. They People look at anything black people control to their own benefit, whether illicit or whether healthy, and it is it has been the nature of American history and and white folk that they want to take it from us and control it for their own good. Blues, they took that. R&B, they took that. Anywhere anything can be made, some uh, money can be made over something in our culture, they want to control it. Well, then they looked at religion and they did the same thing and they found somebody who would who who would kind of help help them along with it. They want to control our religion, and so they train a Creflo Dollar into our community he comes and he exploits 30,000 black people. Now, some of that responsibility lies with 30,000 black people because Creflo Dollar is a reflection as a leader of the people who chose him. And unfortunately, um, it's, we can't excuse uh, them by saying they were misled because the, the leader doing the misleading wouldn't be in a position to do so had they not made him such. But the fact that Creflo Dollar was trained by white folk to come into our community and exploit his own folk, and the black folk who are looking on see that and continue to support him suggests that we got a deeper problem, and the problem is beyond the pulpit. Okay, but well, it's it, it, it's very perplexing that people are not more hostile, not hostile, more resisting 
in what has happened in churches like uh, Creflo Dollar, which which is you know, and I think I think it has something to do with you know, like Eddie Long's church is not really in Atlanta; it's someplace else, and uh, Reverend Dollar. Is that really his name? Uh, you know, Dying. I asked some, I asked some people that in Atlanta, and they assured me that it was. Okay, but then Dollar's Church is really not in the center uh, of Atlanta, um, and when you talk about those on the West Coast, I, I can't recall the man's name right now. Um, Kenneth Copeland, not Kenneth Copeland, um, another the little short one. Uh, that's the best that I can do But Does it have something to do with That the church really Is not In our neighborhoods Let me let me say a couple of things about that First of all more and more Black people are not in the center of our cities mm-hmm. Black people are being uh, Moved out from the center Of our cities to these little Micropolitan areas outside Of town as as another wave of Negro removal, once called urban removal, urban renewal, now called gentrification, uh, takes place uh, across the country. So the, they, it's because they're not in the center of the city don't mean that they are not where black people are. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Uh, Dollar is out on Old National, and there's a whole lot of black people, almost nothing but black people out there. So Creflo uh-huh. Dollar is in the African-American community. In fact, he perhaps is in the community in a way that some of our more middle-class establishments preaching traditional theology is not, in fairness to him, in terms of location. Um, but he is, he is very much in the community. Uh, now, when you, when you identify the fact that some of these megachurches are in suburban areas, um, I, I think you're on to something in that these are the blacks who are upwardly mobile, who are seeking their piece of the pie in America. And this is where it really gets even a little more complicated because there is a certain sense in which the prosperity preachers uh, and religion is not that far from traditional black liberation theology in that they have identified health or liberation as primarily movement into what could be identified as the equivalent of white middle-class status. So there is a sense in which what we think is the more radical, critical orientation of African-American religion is part of the same drift. As we begin to define things like health and things like freedom too narrowly in terms of economic or material advancement or political empowerment and lose what I think is the deeper cultural and and spiritual meanings it should be grounded in. So when we talk about this posterity gospel, what are the major features and what are the destructive features? <laughs> They're the same. <laughs> They're, They're roughly the same. Um, first of all, the whole daggone thing is destructive. Uh, he, here, here's why. It's not just that the prosperity gospel, along with what I'm calling the Pentecostalization of the black church, it's not that the prosperity gospel and this Pentecostalization of the black church is not just what's in the foreground. 
It's what it's doing on the back end. In other words, I can critique it as a theologian and tell you, uh, like perhaps uh, Reverend Warnock did, how wrong theologically it is, how it reverses the position of, of our relationship to Jesus, like perhaps the uh, gentleman from Sojourners did. But for black people, that's not just the problem. The problem is, on the back end, it is destroying the the integrity of the spiritual tradition that provided us the fabric uh, for our community and the common frame of reference for our moral vision as a people. It's not so much what it's bringing, it's what it's undermining as it comes. And mm-hmm. when, the, when the trend comes and goes, the church spiritually in the black community going to be even more fragmented than it, than it is, but with less spiritual and cultural resources to pull it back together after this storm has passed. Well, one of the things, I mean, one one of the things that is very disturbing to people who look at this as a both political and cultural uh, and community development problem is that there's this pull, as you've already pointed out, there's this pull for people who are vulnerable. And at the same time, it creates a hole of resources that were always available for people who were uh, activists, people who were interested in protecting our community and developing our community, and now that institution, that that system, and and and, and this is one of, is one of the destructions. That system has all but disappeared in so many communities because people, as you as you pointed out, are turned to a whole nother agenda. Yes, have the, yeah. have an a, a, an extreme inability to transpose what they are doing and its impact, and I'm talking about individuals now, and its impact on the community. And I'll give you an example, an example of a church in an inner city or in a poor rural area that thinks that their $5,000 a year pantry, food pantry, is somehow in service to a community where most that the medium income is 20% below poverty. And they think that that pantry is because they're busy on who gets an abortion and who gets uh birth control pills and other kinds of con- con- concept uh, birth control and 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 it's like it makes us all crazy and confused. Yeah. Yeah. And what are we going to do in this recession if a guy like Mit Sketch Romney comes into office and there really is nothing to look to to help fill that gap? Well, you, well, you've asked a critical question. One thing black people have to recognize is is that if there is nothing uh when if someone comes into office it's because they they uh they let it go up in smoke 
It's because black people let that happen. They let it happen to their church. Um, because of silly sentimentality and religion, because of not connecting certain dots, because of the way they've chose their religious leaders and the people they chose to follow and the people they choose to support. Sooner or later, in any kind of democratic process, people tend to get the leadership they deserve. And black people have to start accepting some responsibility and calling and holding themselves accountable for the predicament we are in. That's well, one thing. Yeah. Give me, give, Reverend Johnson, you, you, you're my hope champion here. You got to give me something else. <laughs> How do people do that? <laughs> I mean, how do you start? Well, we got to start by waking up. We got to start by um, reassessing our values. We need to start by recognizing that the party is over, and we need to put the golden calf to bed because we're in a predicament here. And we need to recognize another thing, and that is um, how do we see the assumption is somehow that, we, we, we're, that we've landed. People want to act as though that we've landed. And so we can now all go for ourselves. They've lowered the gangplank. We're off the ship. There's the beach in front of us. There's the, 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 there's the jungle. We can go for ourselves. But that's, that's not what's going on. The fact of the matter is still this that unless we move together to alter things like, and I'm going to say it, um, the way the wealth is distributed in this country, unless we move together to alter the way opportunities uh, are, are deployed in this country, the way money is spent in this country in terms of providing opportunities for people at home or killing people and extending multinational corporate interests abroad, until we begin to address some of these issues as a group, we're not going to move very far. Um, now, the reason I'm, I'm pointing that out is because it's a real question of whether or not individuals can actually make it and have their progress safe as black individuals, or whether or not we need to move the whole community in order to make the progress that any one of us makes safe. If it is the latter, that we've got to rediscover the old agenda of seeing my interests as inextricably bound to your interests. And that is a different theological vision. That is the theological vision of social justice. That is the a theological vision of a transformational spirituality. That is the, the theological vision of a focus on the community and the community holding leadership accountable for what it does not, or does, or does not do in their interests. Versus leadership where we trust and accept the system and the means by which it distributes the goods and services and we trust the people who are in charge of it and we embrace the methods that have proven historically not to be in our favor and then hope God blesses us which is the, the prosperity theology and, and, and it, it is such a sick and twisted theology that it encourages people who are suffering to blame themselves for their predicament by not having the faith and suggests that people who look at the system uh, critically are looking for excuses for their failure to follow the will of God. And that's the, the, the prosperity system. And, and that is spiritually dangerous and it's spiritually sick. Well, 
I'm, you know, you are so profound that uh, I'm very rarely rendered speechless, but you're absolutely, that is the bottom line. That on one hand, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at uh, what you're saying on one hand in the context of our churches, and our church has without a doubt um, been the spiritual renewal, the 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 arc of uh, social justice and educational uplift in this journey in this country for our people. And I'm looking at the church on one on one hand, and I'm looking at the street, the non-church, on the other hand, where our children are killing each other. Our children are putting themselves in harm's way by a government-sponsored police demonization and an attack on them as a group. I'm looking at unemployed fathers, lost mothers, and in between is some something that we must do and the first thing we must do is to i is to is to accept that these are the crises in our community that determine whether or not we evaporate as a people yeah. yes you know one of the things and i'm i'm suggesting to all of you out there in our audience tonight the Tragic Vision of African American Religion is the book by Reverend Matthew Johnson. It can be your handbook for understanding how intrinsic the spiritual and religious history, the spiritual and religious culture can save us. Uh, Cornel West um, uh, said about this book that uh, Reverend Johnson was the most profound and prophetic voice of this generation. And I have to agree with my dear, long friend. And he says about this book that it is a serious and substantive probing into the tragic character and content of African American religion. But he also writes that a cre- it is also a creative transvaluation, and Nell made up that word. I know he did, but he said it's a creative transvaluation of the Christianity given to black people, and he suggests that you not miss this book. Um, Reverend Johnson, thank you so much for this book. You really put into context all of the things that I have been struggling with about what's going on in our community. And I have always seen our community as a critical point of reference and development and uplift in in, in our communities. But help us continue to draw this picture of uh, who are these people? I'm always asking this question. Who are these people? And where will they end up when they find that this is failing? 
Okay, well, good question. First, in all fairness to, to Cornell, I know he lets him fly every once in a while. He, he made but, up that word. No, that no that that that, <laughs> that, that one was word. That, okay. No, that one was mine. Yeah, that one was mine. Oh, okay. That, so that you made up book. that word. No, no, the book was people. the word was around. The word was around. We just we just availed ourselves of it. Uh, yeah, you, you can't blame him for that one. Uh, but that's funny. Uh, he, here's what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about many of the hard-working, true-believing pastors and churches out there who, when the disillusionment sets in, when, the, uh, when, when they roll back the awnings and cut out the lights and a carnival moves on to the next town, uh, they're not going to just blame Creflo Dollar and they're not going to just blame Eddie Lee Long. They're not just going to blame the host of their followers and everybody, all the wannabes, they're going to blame the church. And they're going to say, see, that church ain't nothing to the church. I tell you, ain't nothing to the church. Them, them hypocrites in the church, they ain't about nothing but money. And they're going to lump the whole church in the same category after the gods they made failed them. Mm-hmm. And, I, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking that, they, that they, they're going to end up uh, disillusioned, and, and those of us who didn't have any part in the party are going to be left here to try to pick up the pieces um, when it comes to the church because we still believe in the church and what it has to offer um, and the gospel and what we did with the gospel as a race of people. We transvalued it is what we do. In other words, we changed the way the gospel, uh, um, the way the gospel related to the struggles of human beings uh, in this life and particularly uh, black people. But to sound like a preacher for a moment, um, uh, you asked before what can we do to give you some hope. Um, and what came to mind was re- repentance. Black people need to do some repentance. We, 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 we sold our moral and spiritual birthright for a mess of materialistic pottage and found ourselves lost in the wilderness. Worshipping at the foot of this golden calf that can't come through on the promises that it made. We went off after other gods. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if you want real hope, biblically, you got to come to your senses. They need to leave these folk alone. They need to return to their churches and return to their tradition. And And they need to seek to understand what that tradition was. Because shouting in the black community was never people just standing up making a whole lot of noise. I remember when Mama used to get happy. And and we called her getting happy, but she'd be wiping a tear. In that paradoxical reality lies the depth of black spirituality. Because there was a kind of woundedness that healed and and affirmed life. It wasn't this cheap, shallow, sentimental celebration where we get giddy and giggly and happy in some cheap sense at the end of a sermon or worship service. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that. It was a very deep, rich, and resonant affirmation of life that was somehow wrapped up in the pain of our reality, but still nevertheless affirming the reality of God, the hopes that we had, the hopes for our future and the future of our children. That was a different kind of spirituality mm-hmm. than what these people mm-hmm. have now. Mm-hmm. And one and, uh, of the we, things that we're not recognizing is to to the extent that it is creating friction in neighborhoods 
and in families. Yes. Because, you know, I'll tell you my little personal uh, story. I had two sisters who are prosperity ministers, and uh, it has been a huge fissure between us because of it, uh, where... Uh, and 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 between them and their mother, um, and I, you know, one, you know, I can get a little um, haughty, and and I had to say to one of my sisters, "Listen, if you got the Holy Ghost, I don't want it." Yeah, you're totally right. <laughs> and that's how we have to fight back because a lot of these people, uh, and and I'm really concerned about elders who are dragged along in some of these churches. They, they don't understand it, but, you know, the whole family is there, so they go along. Uh, we have other people who, in the, from the middle class, who exploit the very nature of, what, of, of the, the lack of understanding about what's going on. And then there are people who simply don't want to know because they just want to say hallelujah and move to the next thing. Well, and and the other thing is that you can't separate this prosperity, the permeation of the prosperity gospel from from the the change in liturgical forms. Our style of worship, this praise and worship and all this business, all this that they ushered in with this Mm -hmm. prosperity movement goes hand in hand. We, you know, we, 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 we went with it because it built numbers, it built budgets, it built churches, and uh, um, it built congregations. We got folk in there. And, 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 and somehow we, we've gotten wrapped up in a kind of means-ends rationality mm-hmm. where we think that the end justifies the means. It doesn't matter what the music sounds like as long as you get people in church or it doesn't matter what the music sounds like. If you get them to listen, you can preach to them Jesus. And never ask yourself, well, what kind of Jesus are they getting? So you have music that encourages a set of religious sentiments that are not conducive with real spiritual growth, mm-hmm. but rather conducive with the evolution of a kind of religious sentimentality that is fertile ground for exploitation by something like the prosperity gospel. So so when we look at it, it's just not a matter of ideology, and it's just not a matter of these pastors. It's these ministers of music and everybody else who's involved in a conspiracy who wants their piece of a prosperity pie, most of which simply comes from the church itself. I'm glad you used the word conspiracy because I do think that the leadership uh, in many of these churches are conspiring with individuals because in these churches that they have 30,000 people, well, all 30,000 people are not benefiting from, they're not receiving their prosperity. It's maybe 50 who are receiving their prosperity and all the other people are still sitting in the pews struggling to make the mortgage or make the car payment or make the, the, the tuition payment. Or even to to get to work or have a job. But but they're in their pews. They're in there in those pews because they put themselves there. Yeah, but I have a a deep compassion uh, and and empathy for black people who put themselves in harm's way. 
I really do. And I know that we ought to insist upon some personal accountability and some personal responsibility about what we go along with. But at some level, I think that we are, and it goes back to the beginning of our discussion, we are in such a cloak of collective depression and despair and sadness, Reverend Johnson. I'm talking to black people all the time. Such sadness. I talked to a woman the other day, and she was so sad that her words were so slow that I, 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 was, I wanted to take my hand and say, come on, come on, come on, come on. Um, and so I have a, 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 and I know that you do too, but at the same time, it's where is the program? You know when they kidnap people and take them somewhere and get them get their head screwed on right again. Where's that program? The uh, the deep well the deprogramming yeah deprogramming. Um, I don't know. I I don't know, and I don't know that that um, it's it's in it's in the alternative vision. It's in repentance, and it's in the truth. Because but we have a government that's that's pushing this too, with this faith-based initiative. They're luring these pastors to continue to to have this program of oppression going on in our community. That's the government. Yes, but but listen, when Moses came of age. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than the fruit of sin for a season. At some point, a decision is required. You can't go after the faith-based money. At some point, you you have to inspire and rally people to float their own boat if they're ever going to be free uh, and not take the easy ways out when they're offered. And I know we're caught between the rock and the hard place. In all, in all honesty, many pastors face this. You know, you go to the faith-based, uh, get the faith-based money because you got real needs in your community that you simply don't have the resources to meet. And then you got these people with these with, with mega churches in these various communities who are who are taking, in some cases, money out of the community. But in many cases, they are channeling money back into ministries in, in the community. The pastor doesn't. Pastors of these churches don't take all the money. But even when they do that, it is not enough. Yeah. And so yeah. You, you have people who are caught between a rock and a hard place, and they avail themselves of the faith uh, availability of faith-based funds. But what that tells us is that we need a broader critique of what is going on um, systemically. We need a deeper understanding of how, say, our spiritual crisis is related to the economic system, how that's related to the political system, and the way these uh, different systems interact to create a hegemony that reinforces the conditions of our continued oppression. Um, But in order to do that, we need to have a church that's focused on that program. In order to keep people focused on that kind of program, they have to be motivated. They're not going to be motivated if they think all they have to do is pray and believe the right thing, and God's going to make them prosperous and rich. And the other thing is this, that I feel um, as compassionate as anybody. Um, 
sometimes I wonder if I, I didn't make a big mistake by um, dedicating my life to the health and liberation of my people because they don't seem to want it. And so I, I have as much much compassion as, as uh, anybody or perhaps more. But we do have to recognize that our folk um, are going to have to uh, extricate themselves from the kind of materialism that is running them ragged. It We have to, in other words, I can't have compassion on them and not tell them the truth. I mean, Jesus had compassion on the woman caught in adultery, but he did tell her, go and sin no more. The fact of the matter is, is that if you are materialistic, if, if you think that the summa bonum of life is defined by your money and your bling, and that's what you go to church looking for, then, uh, then you're going to get what your hand calls for. And well, don't blame the preacher when you, when you, when you come up uh, uh, with, with uh, snake eyes. Well, you're, uh, I'd like gap. to talk to you about, uh, I, I, I do want to extend uh, this discussion on what we want, how we define ourselves, how we frame our lives, and the, and the message that we are sending to our children uh, about this whole notion that God wants us to be rich, that we want to be rich, that we want to, because it, it translates to something else that has happened in our community over and over, and it's really our denial about our black self. You're listening to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. We're going to take a break. Our guest tonight is Dr. Matthew Johnson, and we'll continue this discussion right after this. Power Views at TruthWorks Network. The Black Voice Collaborative, a talk radio on the Internet and the Black Sea. The best of empowerment broadcasts from across the Internet. Power Views. Rebroadcasting the power. Reloading the truth at TruthWorks Network. Each co-brother, Charles or David, name him, either one of them, are worth more than $21.5 billion. How much money can half a billion buy you and influence and bind the media and what you want? Have they had a little hand in just about everything? From the media, messaging, and the propaganda, to the right-wing think tank that cope their involvement, that cope the funding and where it's coming from, as they are set up as a non-profit organization. This is Alpha, hosting the best of First Bad Talk Radio.
TruthWorks Network. I believe in truth. And you can catch the Alpha Show each Friday at 10 p.m. at TruthWorks Network. He believes in truth. The best of political pushback talk radio. I believe in sex. I believe in love. I believe in taking responsibility. I believe in using condoms. Yo confío en mi comunidad. I believe in being honest and open. I believe in keeping my partner safe. I believe in myself. I believe in stopping HIV. I believe in the future. HIV stops with me. 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 You're listening to Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Grant, and I'll be listening for you. Let us hear from you. Your impressions and opinions on Black Church on Fire. Our number, 347-838-9852. 347-838-9852. Is the Black Church on Fire? This is our common ground. And thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Wow, do we have folks in the house tonight in our chat room at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. Thank you for being with us and joining us. Uh, If you are listening and would like to join in the conversation in our chat room, you can join our chatters at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. Brother Brock, Alpho, India Declare of the I Declare Show, Natty Reb, good to see you, Doc Don and Cajun and uh, Medusa. Thank you for being with us. And Reverend Matthew Johnson, thank you for being with us as well. Uh, One of the things that, before we went on the break, that we started talking about was this whole notion of personal responsibility. Who are these people who are participating in this craziness? And um, I wanted to hear more from you about that and also about your work. Um, you were the national director of Every Church a Peace Church. Uh, tell us a little about that and how that might inform um, more of what you have been doing uh, as part of your ministry. Uh, which Which do you want first? You can take the one you choose. <laughs> um, well, well, Every Church a Peace Church was something I was I was involved with. Primarily at, at the behest and request of uh, Dr. C.T. Vivian, um, mm. uh, who is a sort of uh, my mentor in the Atlanta area, and um, and a man Dr. for whom Vivian I had. Dr. Vivian was associated uh, with this radio broadcast 
for many years when we were terrestrial radio. Wow. One of okay. our guests very often. And so I was asked to participate in uh, on the board of Every Church of Peace Church, and then at one point I was asked to become its executive director because we uh, lost our executive director and the organization was broke. I took it over. And um, as national director, and um, was able to do some, some things um, because of some very wonderful um, foundation people um, um, who helped to um, fund some of our activities. But I had to make some adjustments because I was working with the Peace Church tradition, uh, which are primarily white churches. And um, uh, I was trying to relate that to the social justice tradition, which are primarily black urban churches. And um, what what I discovered uh, working there is how much, um, to the degree to which a presumptuous and self-righteous racism on the part of many of the people we think are our allies in the liberal right community continues to hamper uh, our real possibilities of working together for serious social change. That's what I got out of it. Uh, I also got out of out of it the degree of uh, apathy often in the uh, black community for sitting down on and organizing to pursue goals associated with what we identify as the struggle for liberation. On the other hand, I had some wonderful surprises while I was out in the field with Every Church of Peace Church that there are people in some unusual places across this country who, with the right kind of leadership, I think would really come together to make a real difference, um, the kind of leadership that can really sustain hope. Um, white, black, Latino, there are a lot of people out there who are looking for a voice that can bring some clarity um, to the uh, moral crisis that we're in as a country and culture and provide some leadership. There are people out there looking. And I think we saw that with the election of President Obama, that they, uh, of course, uh, you can't, you can't, you just, you can't confuse a politician with a prophet. That's, you're always going to get yourself in trouble when you do that. But um, mm. it, it did demonstrate that there were people out there who had a longing for something deeper and richer. And maybe we've stumbled upon in this conversation part of the cure for what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Maybe people are. Uh, eating eating straw because that's largely all they're being offered. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe if we give people a real sense of hope and a vision of change that they can believe in, and maybe if we can show them how that vision of change will lead to the pursuit or the actualization of the values that they think their materialist philosophy will bring them, then just maybe perhaps... Uh, we can lead people down a path that's be more productive and fulfilling. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that I have stayed on the issue 
for so many years, and it it, it begs the 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 point that I'm, I'm fifth generation African uh, AME, and um, at one time had thought uh, that uh, I would was called to ministry, and then decided that I wasn't. But um, <laughs> is that <laughs> that a lot of us do that? We keep doing it. I know. <laughs> well, one of the you know one of the things that was discouraging to me was as a kid, and this was very. I, I was in high school when I was thinking this, and uh, I could see how women were treated in 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 the churches. And at this time, there there really weren't any women ministers in the AME Church. Um. Uh, who had any leadership roles or were allowed any leadership roles. But uh, I digress. But that the church, because there are people who tap into their need to govern their lives through a spirit and through a depth that is very important, that it is the basis from which we have to create a movement of revolution in this country with our people. That when we see young men with pants around their ankles, meandering down the street, shirtless, that we have to create a movement which embraces the answers to all of that. That we can't, I was glad to hear you say that, there's a difference between a prophet and a politician. Yeah. And I've heard people say that often, and we can't say it often enough. But we have the capacity to build a movement of revolution in this country. And if we don't do it, and if we don't do it quickly, if we don't do it in the armor of our history and the spirit which we have brought forth and have carried us over the bridges safely, we're we're just going to disappear. We're just going to evaporate. So that's why I've stayed on the church thing, the black church thing, because I think it's built on a foundation of much more than the gospel. It's built on the foundation of how we have survived, and the gospel is included in that. So whether you go to a mosque, whether you go to a whatever you go to, I consider it uh, a source. You know, I consider it the source. And, and I, I, you know, it's like our Sankofa moment. But we've got this big brick in the way, and the brick is this whole prosperity and artificiality that goes on. And we were talking about how this our our people have grasped this consumerism and the bling and the need to be rich whatever that rich is so you're telling me that there are mechanisms out there in which to carry this forward i'm saying that there are people out there who would join in the process of carrying that forward mhm uh, I don't know about how many mechanisms uh, are out there. <laughs> that, you know, well, it, I, I imagine that the good... Because the church has been hijacked. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
The church, the Our church people been, have been hijacked. Yeah, when you hijacked. say that, you're you're saying, you know, when when we were working for uh, a number of, uh, I went all over the country, for instance, uh, trying to organize an independent black political party, and people had essentially disappeared. weren't interested. Couldn't engage. They were off doing whatever they were off doing at that time, and we've got to be able to 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 do something and find find the engine. Help me out, Reverend Johnson. It, 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 where's the engine? I'm, I'm not I'm not quite sure what you, what you. Uh, I'm not quite sure. Asking. What I'm um, asking is. Where is the church, the traditional church, and and is it the engine that we can begin to transform where we are? I think no. I think the resources are in our in in our traditional spirituality. Um, I do, I just don't think it provides the kind of coherent. Uh, foundation that it once did. I think it, our, our spiritual foundation, the black community, has been ravaged. I think I think this stuff that's being promoted as the black church everywhere, from um, um, uh, what's what's uh, the, the fellow who does the Medea uh, hilarious movies, the Medea movie. Tyler Perry. For everywhere from Tyler Perry's movies to black comedians, what's being passed off as the black church is not the black church. And so there's been so much damage done to what the black church is. We've played so footloose and fancy free with the image of the black church for so long. We've made so many jokes about it. We've helped helped, um, helped to uh, support and sustain so many stereotypes about it that we no longer know what it is. Um, yeah, and and so consequently, uh, if you if you look at um, the line in the Passion of the Lord at the end of the piece called Lord of the Crucified, I make the point that the black church has become almost a caricature of itself, unfortunately. Uh, um, so the question is, is it enough, is it enough there? Um, I think the traditional black spirituality, African-American spirituality, is the source. I mean, that with all the hip-hop that's out there, there's still some R&B. And I think that with, with 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 all the materialism out there, there's still some traditional uh, churches. But the traditional churches are still themselves doing the same thing that allowed this prosperity foolishness to get a foothold in the first place. Not picking the right kind of leadership, uh, for one thing. Not picking the right kind of denominational leadership, which is another thing, which goes to something that I know you wanted to discuss, and that was my statement that some people are confusing the black church with what is nothing more than a black caucus in the white church. And um, so in terms of what we even define what the black church is, some people are really mixed up and confused. But but if we, if, if we can get enough people who believe together, and, and if, if we can get enough people who believe, part of writing that book that I wrote, The Tragic Vision, was to try to tell black people that you have something very valuable, and we haven't stopped long enough to even understood what we had before we started throwing it overboard for something else. 
we didn't take time to appreciate really enough of who we are and what we possessed, what our cultural genius is, and, and what it meant and how it responded to our predicament and the way it helped us to adapt. We haven't looked at that enough uh, before we started jettisoning it for, some, for something um, uh, uh, that we're not sure uh, what it can do for us. I, from what we've seen, can do very little than confuse, more than confuse and divide us. So, I mean, we have to get back to our roots. We have to be called back to our odds in some sense. And I want to romanticize this because there's some problems with traditional African-American spirituality, too, that led to the predicament that we're in in some ways. But there are also the resources there, I think, that can bring us together as a community, provide us with a common frame of reference in terms of our values to move forward and our values to hold us together, the way we look at each other, the way we feel about each other, the way we feel about our struggle, I think is there if we go back to it. Well, I think that we can't get better guidance and a better summary of the direction that we need to take in looking at this black church, which is on fire. Um, Reverend Johnson, I, I, I just don't. And, and, and thank you so much for for clarifying and bringing into focus the issues and reassuring us. You have been so reassuring here at the Church of Our Common Ground um, to, to let us know that we're all not, we haven't all lost our minds when we see the confusion and, 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 and in some cases the anger about what has happened uh, to our church as an institution and as a cultural and spiritual um, wall. So uh, I, I really thank you so much, and we, we're running out of time, and I'm sorry for those of you who, who have joined us that we ha didn't have enough time to take your calls, but um, Reverend Johnson will be back at our common ground again because this is not the end of this discussion. And I do want to take a few minutes before you leave us to talk about your novel. Brother, you can pay, if this novel is like you took a, an artist's brush and painted the story. Thank you so much. The name of the book is The Cicada's Song, and it is just so beautiful, and it is such wonderful, deep Southern African-American literature which describes a journey. And and you're, you've just done such a great job with it. Um, I have two copies of it, the one that you were so kind to send to me and sign, and I had purchased the other copy, and my granddaughter is calling me every ten minutes asking me, where are you? Because <laughs> she's reading it. She's reading it. And I had to tell her a couple of nights ago, don't tell me. <laughs> so the the name of the novel is Takata's Song. How long did it take you to write this, this novel, wonderful novel? Uh -huh. It, it took, I, guess, I imagine, uh, once I got rolling, it, it took me about, uh, just about six months. Wow, but, it, it, it's but, a wonderful story. But that, but what, what is um, painful about it is that I've been unable to find an agent. And do you know why some of the agents told me 
that uh, I, they didn't feel that they could find an editor that would receive the book, so I ended up uh, publishing it uh, the way that I did, was because uh-huh. they didn't think it was a market in the black community for that level of writing. Oh. They had no they had no qualms with saying that to me. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if you get a literary um, a, a literary award, some very high literary award on it, because I tell you, I I just and I've I've been putting it to music. I've been putting it to the music of Jimmy Scott. Uh, wow. Yeah, that's why that's why I'm I'm going so slow. But it really, and I recommend it to all of our listeners. Reverend Johnson, thank you so very much. And and you are definitely a very strong and prolific voice of our common ground now. And we hope to have you back because we do want to continue to talk about um, the church as a source of creating uh, and transforming in our community so that we can continue to move forward rather than evaporating. Thank, Thank you, you, my I'd brother. Love, I'd, I'd love to come back and be able to answer some people's questions because I really feel bad that we didn't I know, uh, but take questions. This uh, is such a deep su- subject, which is why I talked to, to you about maybe ha- yeah. making this a two- or three-part uh, program, and we will talk with you next week about putting that together because I, it's 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 very important. And your work is very important. You are unique in our community, and we need to treasure your voice. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, and you have a good Sunday. Are you back in Georgia? No, I'm. I'm, I'm still in uh, in the California, San Anselmo. Yeah, I see. You're Teaching having a good time. Are you boating? Oh no, no, no. We were just uh, in Sausalito for the afternoon. Um, I just gotten out of class. I'm teaching um, a class uh, okay. at the San Francisco Theological Seminary. I see. So uh, I'm working. I I wish it was vacation. I'll get one of those one day. <laughs> I hope I get mine before you get yours. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so very much, and enjoy Thanks. your your class. And we look forward to having you back very soon. Thank you, and God bless. Thank you. Bye bye. I am so sorry that we were unable to uh, have you talk with Dr. Johnson, but he will be back so very, very soon. You're listening to Our Common Ground, and thank you so very much for being with us here tonight, and we hope that you have a good Sunday, and join us at TruthWorks Network um, here at Blog Talk Radio and at Our Common Ground next week. Thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground. For all of you that have joined us in our chat room, we thank you as well. And we're special thanks to Reverend Dr. Matthew Johnson. I'm Janice Grant. Join us each Saturday at Our Common Ground. I'll be listening for you, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Now